is I think most people when it comes to creativity have a mindset problem where they actually use the inspiration theory of creativity, this idea that creativity is just so easy for some as an excuse. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. This interview was actually recorded a few weeks ago, back when I was in New Orleans for the Collision Conference. Got to meet up with a new friend of mine, Alan Gannett. Alan has a multitude of wins under his belt already. In addition to publishing The Creative Curve, he's also the founder of a software company called TrackMaven. He's given numerous talks about creativity that actually spawned the book, and he's a proud dog father. (laughs) Uh, In all sincerity, though, we had a lot of fun talking, and as someone who has founded a creative agency himself, I found the book to be a very accurate perspective on the act of being creative, and it's challenging me to reorient some of my habits and processes in order to continue to keep those good juices flowing. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation and also check out the book, The Creative Curve. Here's my conversation with Alan Gannett. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Well, Alan, thank you for taking some time away from your Collision Conference experience to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I love these headsets, by the way. If you're watching, you can see we're wearing these very cool, I feel like I'm a race car driver. Yeah, or, or in like the broadcast booth. Yeah, something. the broadcast booth of the race car driving thing. Yeah. The track. Exactly. Yeah. I had to, I, I went overboard, but it, it helps add to the experience. Yeah, I think it's good. Makes the conversation <laughs> a little more natural, hopefully. Um, so before we get into the book and all the, I, I don't know how many different pots you have your hand in, uh, very simple question. What is harder? writing a book or being on the wheel of fortune <laughs> um, um you know writing a book but just barely just okay. barely no um wheel of fortune was so i was like so while ago, i was like 18 and i literally was just like i'm gonna like get on game shows this year and um it was first of all one fun wheel of fortune fact then i'll stop is um is pat sajak is like five foot three like he's tiny and so they have every contestant on these r- adjustable risers and Pat Sajak's is all the way down to the bottom. And mine was like, or mine was all the way down to the bottom. His was all the way to the top. And I'm still like towering over him. He's like this tiny little dude that you can't tell on television. Yeah. Well, the illusion of the TV is yeah, it's, it's crazy. ripped away. Yeah, Hollywood magic. It's all gone. Yeah. What is so fascinating about your life experience, I guess, is that you've kind of stuck your nose into these different industries and started to really piece apart how things work and not just consume it at a superficial level, which is something that we love to do on the show and get into the weeds with it. But you've been very pointed about interacting with high-level operators in these arenas and piecing apart what it is they do. And that's what led to the book, but it's also led to a great deal of success and reach and influence on different social media platforms like LinkedIn. Um, so my, my question to you is really when you started going about asking people or, or contacting people to try and get their perspective. Yeah. So I've always been like super questiony. Like I've always been really curious. It's one of those things where I think part of it is like, I'm uncomfortable talking about myself. Um, so like, you know, right now promoting a book is like sort of like really nerve wracking yeah. and I feel much more comfortable asking questions. I also like to learn about a really eclectic set of things. And so I've always been just biased when I'm meeting people really just trying to like absorb everything they know. And so that has been this thing, which I sort of naturally was doing. And then I sort of realized that over time, like 
it, I was learning all these things and I realized I could sort of direct that energy where I wanted to direct it. And it was a really straightforward way to learn new things, to meet new people and do all that. And a lot of people aren't necessarily up for you to just pester them with questions. But when you add in that we're going to record it and we're going to share it with other people. I actually, I actually disagree. I actually think, I actually think people are really comfortable being pestered with questions. I think like one of the things that I've realized and that, so I've always been a big sort of like social animal, like breakfast, lunch, dinners, meetings with people, coffee meetings with people, like always just meeting a lot of new people. And like, that was sort of the way that I've interfaced with the world. And the thing I realize is that like most people don't have a lot of opportunities, even the people you think would like these powerful people don't have a lot of opportunities to sort of share their story in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've always been someone who's like, I'm happy to get lunch and like not talk about myself at all. Like I'm really just want to like learn what I can from you. Um, I'll finish the food and, and you can talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it is funny by the way, because I do have, when I have lunches with people, I'm always the first, I'm always the first to finish because like, I'm just like, and they're just talking, talking, talking. Yep. Um, and so I think that's sort of, and then I do like these LinkedIn videos and like they do pretty well. And like, that was literally just like people I meet sort of along the way of just running a company. I just sort of harass them to do a video. So like, you know, you know, Aaron just ran into me or you, I'm, I don't know why I'm saying third person. You just ran into me at the end of a meeting with someone. And then I was just like, Hey, we're going to do a video. And she was like, okay. And so that's, that's what we did. That's awesome. Yeah. So you talked about these videos. They really are doing well on LinkedIn and they led to this book, which is the creative curve. So let's, you know, do the pitch of what the creative curve is and why people need to be exploring this. I mean, my company is literally called Piper creative. So it's right in my alley. Great. Yeah. So the book is called the creative curve. It comes out um, June 12th and uh, ever books are sold. And um, basically the whole thing around the book was I was spending all this time with marketers. So my day job is I run TrackMaven. It's a marketing analytics platform used by a lot of big brands. And I would talk to these marketers and they would say like, hey, like, you know, I'm not creative. Like, I'm not that person. I have to hire an agency or I have to do this or that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, like, you know, I'm not Mozart. I'm not Picasso. I'm not Steve Jobs. And I realized that in our sort of culture, we talk about creativity as this very sort of individual centric sort of magical divine thing. And I had always been a big reader of like autobiographies and stuff. And I remember, you know, the stories when you actually read the autobiographies of these creative geniuses, like that's not the story. Like it isn't that they just woke up one day and they were like super creative or something. It was like, actually it was like a lot, a lot of not even hard work, but like smart work. And um, so for the book, the book came out of this talk that I was giving for about a year that was really sort of, taking back the onion of a lot of stories of creative genius and showing that like, it's not the story of like Mozart, for example, didn't just wake up and was a great musician. That's like completely not what happened. He spent 14 years practicing three hours a day with the best music teachers in all of Europe under the conditional love of a father who basically told him like, become a great musician or else. And only after 14 years did he write his you know, truly first original piece of music, right? And it wasn't even that good of a piece of music. So like the story of Mozart, like popping out of the womb, writing operas is not how it really happened. And so I was giving this talk about that that was meant to be a sort of, hey, marketers, you know, you know, realize that this sort of vision you have isn't true. And that spiraled into a book proposal. Um, and then I realized that this is actually something where all creatives have this, you know, kind of concern where no matter if you're a playwright or, you know, an actor or a singer or whatever, it's like, you have this feeling of like, well, it's not easy for me, so I must not be capable. And so the book is split into two parts. 
Um, what I did to research the book was I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. So these are you know billionaires, startup moguls, Tony Award winners, Grammy like a lot of very eclectic set of people. And then I also interviewed all the leading academics who study creativity and who are alive today from neuroscience, psychology, sociology, like all these different fields of study. And how that all came together was the book has these two halves. So the first half of the book is disproving this myth of the inspiration theory of creativity, which it's just there's so much science that shows us that that is not how creativity works. Creativity is a very normal biological phenomenon that we can learn to get better at. And in fact, there's a lot of science of how to get better on that. The second half of the book is I found that there was these four things that all the creatives I interviewed did to enhance their creativity. And so I explained those four things. I used the stories of the creatives that I interviewed and I explained the science of why they work. So it's meant to be, so the first half is meant to be like a really good sort of like 101 and like, creativity as a concept and the second half is meant to be very very actionable like things you can do today right and you also you talked about these interviews that you did you also cite historical examples mm-hmm. so you talk about how this applied to ben franklin totally. or kurt vonnegut or other characters yeah. throughout talk history about mozart a bunch yeah exactly so i was particularly entranced by the laws that those sure. uh, back half of the book so i want to talk about one in particular which is the law of imitation yeah and, um, I, you know, we talked about Vonnegut, we talked about Ben Franklin, we talked, and you cite how these different characters, the initial stage was often consumption or imitation of other people who were doing something well. So Mozart spending 14 years before producing something original yeah. was taking a lot in and consuming a lot yeah. before that creation took place. Yeah, so one of the things, one of the sort of themes in the book that I thought was interesting was over and over again, we have this notion of creatives, and you even see like, you know, maybe like quotes on Instagram to this effect, or, you know, you know, 98% of people are consumers, 2% are creators, like be a creator, like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, there's a sort of like thing around like, you know, creators are these people who are constantly like doing stuff. They're bringing new ideas to market. Like they're doing all this stuff. In reality, when you actually look at the stories of creative geniuses, like the story is not that. The story is actually one of a huge amount of consumption, first of all. So I have these four laws of the creative curve. The first one is consumption. And um, there's a lot of details in why this is important, but the sort of short version is that all these creative geniuses I interviewed actually spent at one point of their lives huge amount of times consuming content, and they still do that to this day. And I explain in the book why, but really what it comes down to is a lot of the ways that our brain connects new ideas relies on us having the actual knowledge and the mental models and the memories for it to connect. So like, you know, Paul McCartney, for example, like grew up in a musical household, literally played in a cover band, was always listening to music. And so like, yeah, he like has epiphanies about music and you don't because you didn't have all that sort of inputs. Like, you know, you need to have electricity for your light bulb moment, so to speak. The second element that I thought was really interesting was, you know, we talk about creatives as being really focused on originality and innovativeness and all that kind of stuff. But what I found over and over again is when you actually look at these stories, most creatives learn through imitation. So Kurt Vonnegut, you mentioned. So Kurt Vonnegut was uh, at one point a master's student in anthropology. And um, his thesis, which he ended up not graduating, and he has this quote that I put in the book around why he didn't graduate. Basically, it's something like, I didn't realize primitive people were so stupid. And so he like really didn't like anthropology. But his master's thesis was really fascinating. And basically, he mapped out the emotional arc of different novels that he looked up to. And he found that there's these recurring patterns of what made a great story. And, you know, how did the story arcs change? And how did people do that? And you see this, you know, Ben Franklin talks in his autobiography about how he learned to write 
by imitating articles in The Spectator, which was sort of like the economist of the day, like it was a little bit pithy, it was kind of global and intellectually minded. And that's how he learned how to write. And like, to me, that was just such an interesting thing was like, you know, oftentimes you look at creativity as this sort of pursuit of originality, but so much of creativity really is about the pursuit of the familiar and about using the structures and using the baselines that are intact. And, um, you know, Kanye West recently tweeted in one of his tweet storms about how great artists steal an update. And I think that's a really, really sort of important and critical element when it comes to creativity. Absolutely. So given that you've had this lesson of consuming smartly and consuming rapidly and aggressively hammered into you just through creating the book and studying these folks. How do you think about your own consumption as it pertains to either being an entrepreneur, being a creative, being a writer? So, okay, first of all, writing a book about creating hits is probably the most like terrifying thing because if the book's not a hit, you're like, oh shit. (laughs) So like, um, so hopefully it'll work out. But, you know, the book was cool because I'm writing these things about new creative process as I'm going through this big creative process. And so one of the things I found sort of on the consumption point was I read thousands and thousands. I don't, I think it was like 10,000 pages, but I read like thousands and thousands of pages of peer reviewed um, research on creativity. And so when I was like in the shower or at the gym or, you know, on a walk or whatever, like the sort of epiphanies I would have are about these like really wonky esoteric concepts in creativity science. Like that's what I would be thinking about. And like, I would not have been having those if I hadn't been reading all these things. And so there was this sort of like um, interesting feedback loop as I was learning these things and I was able to be sort of self-reflective about what was going on in my own process. And so um, you know, right now um, I'm in, I'm obviously, you know, in book marketing mode. And so there's not as much consumption. But what I did do a few months ago was basically I looked at all the books in my categories that did well. And then I did a whole bunch of Google search, Google news searches, figuring out like, where they get media placed, how did their, what was their approach, what did that look like, how did their sales, Amazon sales rank change over time. And so getting that texture and feel of like what a good campaign would look like from a marketing perspective. Makes sense. We didn't really talk much about TrackMaven and the analytics platform yeah. that it is. I'm really curious how much that informed, not just the marketing of the book, yeah. but the strategy that you've employed 100%. with creating this book. Yeah, so let me give you a quick primer on TrackMaven. So the company is almost six years old, mm-hmm. employ about 60 people, work with brands like, you know, our customers have been like, you know, we have MBA, Marriott, GE, Aetna, Honda. And basically what we do is we suck in all their marketing data across social content and digital. And from there, we allow them to do sort of reporting and, you know, visualizations and all that stuff you'd want. But the other thing we do is that we actually can take that data and tell them, like, what are the things they should do differently from that? So, you know, should they be focusing on different channels? Should they be focusing on different stories, different themes, different audiences? And so, you know, my whole thing has always been this sort of intersection of right brain, left brain. I think, like, data and systems and structure inform really great creativity. And so, you know, one of the examples, obviously, that sort of underlies a lot of the sort of thesis of the book. Um, but the other things you th- see are like one of the reasons I got into LinkedIn was we were seeing across TrackMeme's data set that LinkedIn, this was last spring, was just blowing up. Like all these sites were getting like more referral traffic from LinkedIn than Twitter all of a sudden. Like LinkedIn engagement on content was blowing up. It was nuts. And so that was really cool because part of the book is about timing. And so I had sort of this awareness that LinkedIn was really taking off a lot earlier um, I think maybe other people did in the sort of marketing industry. And so I started getting involved in LinkedIn sort of like late spring last year and like creating a lot of content. And at that point, especially, there just wasn't as many people doing it. Sure. But there were still other people doing it. And relative, like your videos 
definitely popped up relative to some of the other people that weren't. And yet LinkedIn is a relatively new platform. There isn't this rich history. You weren't consuming LinkedIn videos as a kid to inform the way that you went about marketing. Yeah, so. but that's and that's where I think it's interesting. So LinkedIn, for example, the video thing. So I got into the LinkedIn video beta. And so I did have access before other people. And what I basically did is I looked at, sorry, there's a bug that I'm trying to kill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like right on your phone ah, here. We got it. <laughs> Um, those listening at home, that was, uh, that's what it sounds like to kill a bug. Um, um, but yes, yeah, so I had seen what had worked and developed over other platforms, especially like YouTube or Facebook. And I'd seen the rise of like very, very short form. I'd seen the rise of, you know, being super important to like caption videos. And so I basically looked at that and said, okay, I have sort of early access to this platform. There isn't as many people on it. There's a lot of white space. You know, I know that these things work because of what's worked in other platforms. I spend all of my day seeing like the data of what's working and not working for other people. And so I knew like sub two minutes, caption the videos, make them quick, make them straightforward. I married that with the fact that I professionally am an extrovert. And I was like, okay, I see people all the time. I should just like, you know, ask them if I can record a one question interview with them. And so I sort of knew going into it that that would at least resonate if I executed it well and like did a decent job of it. And so now it's like, I think if you were trying to do the same thing, it would just be harder because there's more people have done it. It's not as new. It's not as fresh. And that's a story that's true with any platform. So you see in any, any sort of new platform or medium, you see um, it's very easy early on to develop an audience relative to later on when the platform has scale. And so that's why you see so many YouTubers, for example, other YouTubers who became famous in the first sort of three to four to five years where it was a lot easier. Now it's like there's all these algorithms and you need to like, you know, be part of groups and there's all this stuff that goes on. And so, um, you know, timing is really important. Then you also see just generally how these these sort of patterns and trends do. There are a lot of crossovers in marketing around like what's working or not working. Right. Let's talk then about the way in which you're managing mm -hmm. track maven as you're doing this so marketing a book could be a full-time yeah. job or going on a speaking tour could be a full-time job but you're also running this company how so does i think that it's work? helpful being like a single man right there's no kids like i have a dog right and he's like he's lovable and um he loves his dog sitter right and so <laughs> we're having a little bit of absentee father summer um which is okay i guess um, and so I think there's that, right? It's just, I don't have that many, like I couldn't do this if I had two or three children at home and if I had a spouse and all that sort of stuff. So that's one. Um, the second is I have a really fantastic president. So I have, um, this guy, Tim Kubek, who's my president of my company. And so him and I have been, you know, working together for like three years now. And, um, basically we sort of run the company in that I'm very focused on the external stuff. So like fundraising, investor relations, analyst relations, big customers, big prospects, thought leadership. And obviously there's some seasonal things like right now, the next eight weeks, I'm like a lot heavier in book mode than I was you know, a year ago because like the book's about to come out. Um, right. But yeah, I think you have to have that sort of dynamic in that you have to be able to sort of make sure everything fits within a week, so to speak. So whether you need other people involved or just being realistic. And so like for me right now, I'm working seven days a week and I know it's not sustainable. Right. But I also know it's like the book's going to come out and you know, it's not going to be, you know, then it's out. Right. And so there's only so much more I can do at that point. Uh, and so I'll go back to like, you know, I usually don't work on Saturdays and like that kind of stuff. And um, I'll go back to sleeping normal hours. Are you the type of person though, that you'll like create some sort of reward for yourself or like, like light at the end of the tunnel no, or is that just like not how you operate? No. Is that because of aspirations or is that just your habit or like, what do you attribute that to? I don't to? know. Um, my therapist and I were talking about this the other day. I sort of have this like tendency to throw my body at like, very physically, like just like, I'll just 
beat my body up until it breaks. Like I, you know, do these crazy sort of travel binges and then I get sick. I'm like, I guess I should slow down. Right. And that's sort of how I've always operated. I don't know. I just have a lot of energy and I generally, the things that motivate me and get me excited are like, you know, spending time with other people and like learning new things. And, um, and so, and yeah, and I think there's probably a little bit of just like sort of FOMO in life. Like I really like life. Like I really enjoy it. And I like sort of experiencing all that it has to offer. And I like don't want to miss any of it. It seems like also the kind of book tour schedule or just getting to all these novel places, t- speaking with new people is also very aligned with just what kind of gives you energy or makes you. Yeah. And my like life, my life is a lot more incestual in terms of like, you know, what happens is like, you know, when you do a book and you're running a company, it's like your customers get excited about it. They want you to come in and speak to their teams. They introduce you to bigger executives because like, oh, like, you know, this guy who we work with is now an author. And there's sort of that whole element, too. And so it's a lot. There's not like a as clear of a delineation as it may look from the outside where a lot of it sort of like feeds into each other. So like here, you know, we're at Collision. I spoke on the main stage because of the book, but I had a couple meetings here, which I would die to have that I got because I was a speaker and like they helped set them up. Right. And so a lot of the things when you think about um, you're running a business is like, how do you develop sort of um, a platform and how do you develop sort of being more of a magnet versus pushing. Right. And that's one of the things that books are really helpful for. And not just being a magnet too, but it, it being a way to open the door, you have mm-hmm. the actual kind of carrot that will lead to that. Yeah, coming. totally. That makes sense. Cool. Well, we don't have you for much more time here. As it pertains to creativity and having been this filter for a bunch of academic research on the creativity, are are there other broad rules outside of the consumption and the imitation that you can recommend for people? Yeah. So there's there's two more in the book. And I think um, one that I think is pretty sort of like more straightforward, that's pretty immediately actionable without a lot of detail is... Across all of the different creatives I interviewed, one of the things I thought was so fascinating was how iterative their processes were. So, like, you think about a creative, like a novelist. They're, like, they're going off to their writing cabin. They're, like, writing the novel, and, like, it's done, right? That is not how it works. And, like, I even experienced this with writing this book where it's, like, you know, you have the book. Like, my name is on the cover, but, like, I had a research assistant. I had a developmental editor. I had a copy editor. I actually – and a proofreader. And I had my agent read and I had 15 external people, external readers who read it and gave me feedback throughout the entire process. And so like, you know, there's one name on the cover, but like creativity is this very iterative and very community driven process. And so one of the things I'd really sort of encourage people to do is like, you need to get over this perspective, this mindset of like, okay, like I tried to do this thing and, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out great. It didn't work out. And like, you know, so I'm not creative. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, you did all this stuff and you did a first draft and like, that's just like the first, the first place. Like the first draft of this book was horrific, right? And like, that was part of the process. And so that was one of the things I found. I talk in the book about how a lot of times, even these processes, which feel very organic, there's actually a lot of like, even like data in them. Like I talk about the Ben and Jerry's flavor development process in the book. I profile them. And they do all these really fascinating surveys around consumer taste and preference when designing these flavors. So they have these like amazingly talented chefs with these really complex palettes and all this years of experience. But in the, the day, they still know they have to like engage their customers and get feedback because the, the creativity is about 
creating something for an audience. And if it doesn't resonate with the audience, you failed. Absolutely. And also the other one that you used in one of the talks was about how Starbucks picks its locations oh, yeah. and the massive data Huge behind that, data despite sense. the fact that it's like a Starbucks across the street. Yeah. From yeah. You literally see Starbucks across the street and you're like, this is so foolish. And it's like, no, 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 it is not. It is not foolish. It is very methodical. They have this, they built a crazy custom mapping tool to power all of it. Like it's nuts. Awesome. Well, um, I'm definitely going to make sure we link to one of the talks that you've given. Definitely want to encourage people to check out the book, but the audience would be remiss if they didn't watch the videos that you're creating on LinkedIn. So let's give them some digital coordinates to oh, follow you. Thanks, dude. Yeah. So um, you can check out my website. It's allen.xyz and there's links to all my social media, blog, newsletter, all that stuff. And um, the book is out June 12th um, and the audiobook, um, which I narrated, which was a whole effing process. And um, I have lots of thoughts on that if you ever think about doing it um i've heard that that's brutal it's brutal it's really fun but it's brutal why um because you're in a gray room it takes 21 hours to record and so and you and you read everything you wrote and so one you're like who writes this like why <laughs> did i possibly write this paragraph like this is terrible and second it's just really hard to like enunciate clearly through every single word um but yes yeah, so the book comes out june 12th um audiobook um ebook all that stuff um you check it out the the creativecurve.com has links to all the retailers and it has book trailer and all sorts of good stuff awesome well we're gonna link that in the show notes for this episode going deep with aaron.com slash podcast is gonna have all of alan's social the book all of those goodies But as we do at the end of each interview, Alan, I want to give you the mic a final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. So the big thing I think that people can take away from is I think most people when it comes to creativity have a mindset problem where they actually use the inspiration theory of creativity, this idea that creativity is just so easy for some as an excuse. Because they look at it and say, well, it's not that easy for me, so I'm just not going to try. And I think sometimes people sort of couch that in like, oh, I'm discouraged, like I don't have that. But I actually think a lot of it's an excuse. And, you know, in the book, I make this point at the end, which is that I'm not saying that it's easy. Um, I'm not saying it's going to, you know, take a short amount of time. What I'm saying is that if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to commit to it, if you're willing to really pour yourself into it, there is a roadmap that other people have traveled to achieve great creative heights that you can also trap. And I think you stop. You have to stop giving yourself the sort of pass of saying, well, it's not naturally easy for me because it's not naturally easy for anybody. Right. And that's also that first step of just acknowledging it as a possibility. Like, yes. like people don't even recognize that. They look three steps down the road and say that that's the obstacle when they yeah. don't realize it's that understanding of possibility being the first step. Yeah, just giving yourself permission. I love it. Well, very sincerely, read the book, recommend it to people. It's The Creative Curve by Alan Gannett. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast Thanks, Aaron. This is fun. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Please hit that subscribe button if you've not already done so. And head on over to YouTube, check out This Is Piper, the YouTube series that we're doing of the company that I founded with Hannah Phillips, Piper Creative. We've been doing a ton of great vlog episodes, including a recent one profiling the launch of our new apparel line, Piper One. Hannah has custom designed a number of shirts representing part of the Piper ethos. If you want to not only just support the company, but look really good in a really comfortable shirt, check that out, pipercreative.co slash apparel to check out all the designs. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.